The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to a slightly new format for the edition podcast. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the magazine, as per usual, but trying to give some insight into the thought process behind putting the spectator to bed each week. I'm Laura Prendergast, the spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, the spectator's features editor. So, Will, it's, it's Wednesday afternoon and the magazine went to press a couple of hours ago at 1.30 today. Our cover line this week is the plot, Katie Balls on the plan to take down Rishi. Why don't we start by casting our mind back to conference on Monday when we decided this cover? How how was it decided? Well, I mean, the plot to take down Rishi Sunak is something that has been brewing for a while. But there was something which Katie Balls said in that conference on Monday which made us all laugh. And I do think it's probably quite a good rule that if something makes us all laugh on a Monday morning then it's not a bad idea for a feature or or to be, in this case, our cover feature. And what made us laugh was that she was talking about this plot to take down the Prime Minister and was making the point that when Nadine Doris, the former culture secretary and sort of ultra Boris loyalist, made the claim in her book, which was called The Plot last year, that the number 10 advisor, Dougie Smith, had, had orchestrated a plot to remove Boris Johnson from office and was now planning to oust Rishi Sunak this 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 book was just torn apart by everyone by the re- book reviewers by the by her colleagues i mean everyone sort of laughed at it but katie was making the the point that actually you know nadine sort of had a point yeah and the cover image itself was was fun to come up with because we we conceived of it as a as a sort of kind of airport thriller book cover i i suppose and um we we went to morton moreland our cover artist with that idea and he's he's done a brilliant job he's the words, the plot, are depicted with all these shady characters behind them lurking and looking out at Rishi Sunak, who's cowering in the centre of the O. So, yeah, I think it's it's a fun cover this week. I think so. And, I mean, Morton is just such a, a genius at getting across the inherent ludicrousness of a lot of this skullduggery and, you know, attempted skullduggery. Because, as I say, there's a sort of amateurish streak to to the operations here, which 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 is worth laughing at. And um, we spoke to Katie Balls, our political editor, earlier about her piece, along with Stephen Bush, the associate editor of the Financial Times and regular guest on Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. So here's what they had to say. So I think the funny thing about this plot is on the surface, it is flawed for a number of reasons. They don't have a replacement leader. <laughs> they don't really have a clear plan for what would happen after you oust Rishi Sunak. And they don't have the support of a mass of MPs. So that does suggest it's got some way to go. But I think the reason it is significant and worth notice is because 
there is money. <laughs> there is, you know, groups of people who want to be in the shadows, who want to put money towards trying to oust the prime minister before the next election. And there are people who are willing to do their bidding. And therefore, it means it's less a plot that is happening on the parts of the parliamentary estate right now. But it is something where I think you have quite a focused group who will try and do various things between now and the local elections, just after the local elections, and see what they can throw at the wall and see what sticks. And MPs do get nervous. So to your second question, Will, which is, does this mean Nadine Doris is right? I think it's certainly the case that when Nadine Doris's book came out and was serialised, and it was also called The Plot, mm-hmm. and it was about the assassination of Boris Johnson, lots of people, including many of her colleagues, said, this is approaching fantasy. Who is this Dougie Smith you write of, the shadowy backroom fixer? And she also said, you know, there's this group that as prime ministers, next they'll go for Rishi Sunak and try and bring Kemi Badenoch. I think at the very least, as one MP said to me, this group, the making Nadine Doris sound sane. So who are some of the figures in this group? Are you able to reveal some of the key players? So I think it's worth noting that Lots of people are quite private, all the, you know, whispering and so forth. But I think in terms of who is in this quite loose group, I would say. So we talk about the plot. I don't think it's just one group acting all in sync. But I think what it is formed of is some former Tory donors who are pretty disillusioned with the direction of things, perhaps never backed Rishi Sunak in the first place. I think you've got some internal critics in the party. Some have come forward, some haven't. Simon Clark, of course, went public. But I think there's more who are saying, oh, we probably shouldn't get rid of the leader, but let's talk some more. And then I think you've got some former government aides who are linked to this who are you know working um perhaps in some cases on the payroll in some cases not to try to destabilize Rishi Sunak so it comes down in terms of motivation to a mix I think of dislike of Rishi Sunak which nearly all of them have and a sense that something we do care about the conservative party and we genuinely think despite everyone saying this is insane and mad that things are so bad we might as well try and shake things up before an election where most people would concede the Tories are heading to a bad defeat. Stephen, what do you make of the plot? Do you think Rishi Sunak has cause for concern or is it a ludicrous farce? Both, I think. I mean, I think I think that's the thing that Katie's cover story ca- captures really well, right? Is this is in many ways a kind of keystone cops operation in terms of its competence, its sense of what it, its alternative is, its theory of change, if it were to get rid of Rishi Sunak, is, is pretty bad. But it's well-resourced. It's not particularly well organised, but it clearly has an appetite to keep throwing money at the problem, and it may therefore eventually succeed. I, I think it's important to remember that, that although it's it's handy from the perspective of allowing readers to pass things, we always talk about plot singular. Really, with the exception of the plot that brought down, well, that brought forward Tony Blair's exit date in two thousand and six, it's always actually plots plural because you have some people who are serious, some people who are just grumbling, and then eventually a thing happens that means it ignites, and suddenly the prime minister's in trouble. Right? We saw that with the plots against Boris Johnson, where you had serious plot to use Partygate, marginal MPs who were deeply concerned about what that meant in their own seats. Fiscal hawks who were concerned about the looming budget and the fact that he wanted to spend like there was no tomorrow. And that all kind of collided. And of course, the problem for all of those groups is they ended up with something they very much did not want, which is Liz Truss as prime minister. And so I think we should be worried about it, because just because it's farcical doesn't mean that it can't 
hit that same coming together of fortunate events than the various often quite disorganised and illogical plots against Boris Johnson did. And I think the problem is it doesn't have to actually succeed to do the Tory party great damage. <laughs> In a way, it not succeeding, but leading to all these uh, blows taken out on Rishi Sunak as they try and look unified ahead of an election is also a very bad result for the Prime Minister. But you say, Katie, it could do this, this great damage for the Tories, but could a counter-argument not be the governing party has never gone into an election year polling as low as the Tories are currently polling right now. Therefore, I mean, what is there to lose? How much lower could they go? But I think this is where you get to the interesting debate on the two schools of thought. And it almost comes down to why do you currently think the Tories are doing so badly? Now, the number 10 line and the view of many government loyalists is it's the infighting, it's the Liz Trust premiership and it's all those issues and they've come up and this is more, uh, you know, madness, as they say, Nick Ferrari, the guest of honour at this all Tory MP dinner they had last week, obviously picked by number 10 because they thought he would say something they liked. But saying, you know, my calling readers on LBC, they're saying you need to unite, stop the psychodrama. But then the counter argument is Rishi Sunak has moved the party to this almost no man's land where I think as uh, one former cabinet minister put it everyone's a bit miserable it doesn't go all the way on the boats it doesn't go all the way on tax it doesn't all go all the way on anywhere and they think that Rishi is trying to repeat almost this 2015 general election style strategy where you get home with a mix of seats taking some from the Lib Dems and so forth and perhaps you know scrape home or have a moderate defeat but they would argue that coalition no longer exists and you need to tack more to the right, more on immigration where these 2019 voters, the undecideds are, and Rishi Sunak is not up to the job. So I think you can, if you think about it, start to see where the plotters are coming from. But I think probably one of the problems they have is because what's happened in the past two years, I've spoken to some who agree with that argument, but they do think just the process of changing leader again would be so damaging it might negate that. Stephen, we have three by-elections coming up this month and we have local elections in May. Do you think this could all come to a head if those end up being perhaps as disappointing for the Tories as recent by-elections have been? It's certainly possible, right? In the, the crucial thing that the plot has already achieved with the MRP that they gave to the Telegraph is that and this is this is true, I think, whenever a party's in trouble. You'll talk to an MP and they'll go, oh, it's really bad. You know, uh, I was talking to a friend in a constituency like mine. He or she is definitely doomed. They're like, oh, but I'll be fine because, you know, I've pointed a lot of potholes, right? And I heard that from lots of Lib Dem MPs in 2015 who aren't Lib Dem MPs anymore. I heard that from lots of Scottish Labour MPs in 2015 who aren't Labour MPs anymore. Lots of Labour MPs in 2019 who aren't Labour MPs anymore. And I think what the what's already happened in the Tory party is that sense of we're in trouble but I'm fine has broken down. So it, it's definitely possible that another shock, let's say... So, OK, the by-election, which is, I would say, superficially the one which, if I were in Downing Street, I would think might give the Conservative Party some respite, which would be the Rochdale by-election, where you can see how George Galloway's standing, there's a fairly strong um, Conservative vote that, broadly speaking, doesn't get any bigger or smaller, but reliably turns out for the Conservative Party in every election in that part of the world. You can see how the Labour Party only squeaks home, or George Galloway wins, and it causes a sort of outbreak of, you know, what are we for, what are we going on within the Labour side? But equally... 
you can see a situation in which the Conservative Party comes a distant third and suddenly everyone goes, oh, you know, it's over, even when Galloway stands, even when everything goes wrong for the Labour Party, they still beat us, etc., etc. And then the local elections will again be quite a big moment of trauma in the life of the party, assuming the polls don't move between then and now, because loads of associations will lose all of their councillors and they'll be upset about that and will complain to their MPs. So it's really possible that any of those events could trigger a sort of outbreak of, I would say, deeply self-destructive, let's try and change Prime Minister again. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it could happen. You were speaking earlier, Stephen, about how there's almost no such thing as a plot singular. Yeah. There, there tend to be collection of plots that all sort of come together. I'd love to end by asking both of you, starting with you, Stephen, do you have a, a favourite failed political plot from uh, British history? So I think my, my favourite plot, partly because I'm going to confine myself solely to ones I've covered and seen up close, is the 2016 failed plots against Jeremy Corbyn, where you had basically four plots, all of which were essentially go, had no communication with each other. Uh, you had the plot of the kind of old guard well you know they can deselect me but they can't deselect my pension you know let's let, you know, let's let's no con him you had the let's kill him in in the dark by keeping off the ballot in the NEC plot you had the shadow cabinet let's do rolling resignations plot and then you had the I'm an upset pro-European who wasn't expecting this and I just want to hit someone plot and it was this thing where like well with the exception of the no con vote which very badly just did not understand Jeremy Corbyn. All three, or like three of those four plots, you're like, okay, I see what your theory of change is here, mm. right? The pro-Europeans, the committed pro-Europeans were so upset and they thought the membership would be as upset as they were too. The get rid of him on the ballot people had a very clear plan to use the Labour rule because a cudgel. And the shadow cabinet plot was just like, well, we'll just make it untenable to continue. But the four plots coming together, also the four plots coming together and sexually having their timing decided by the no-con plot, which had no hope of succeeding, basically meant that none of those plots could possibly have worked. And so it was like watching a kind of episode of Wacky Races in that you'd have a conversation with one person about, you're like, oh, you know, our plan can succeed, but only if it doesn't become too high profile. And it's like, well, I'm watching a fourth shadow cabinet minister resign, so I I think your high profile (laughs) ship has sailed. So, yeah, it was just, it was great because it was kind of the reverse of what we saw, I think, with Boris Johnson, where you had plots colliding in a way which was destructive to the leader. You had plots colliding in a way which was destructive to the plotters, and it was just a fascinating thing to to witness unravel up close. Katie, do you have a favourite plot, either failed or successful? Well, I never lived through it, but I do think the Hoon Hewitt plot is always very funny as an example of a failed plot, which was the sense that I think it began on the BBC in the morning, which was, you know, there's nothing in this plot. And then actually, uh, I said, oh, there might be. And then they overcompensated by the evening, saying more cabinet ministers, five are coming out, and then no one did. (laughs) And it was probably a good lesson and probably why we are a bit sceptical of this plot, which is if your so-called stalking horse, the person who in this case is supposed to replace Gordon Brown, so David Miliband, stays quiet and decides it's, it's not worth putting a foot out because it might go wrong, plots tend to fail. I think in terms of organised plots, if you go to the Boris Johnson example, there are obviously parts in Parliament such as the pork pie plot, when I think... Actually, it wasn't too sophisticated a plot. It was a bunch of 2019 MPs met in the office of the MP who represents where pork pies are from. And so the name came from. But the more sophisticated plot was actually a long-running campaign to undermine Boris Johnson with with things that were there in terms of wallpaper gate, in terms of what was happening on Partygate. And it was an example, I think, going back to 
the plot we're talking about of how it doesn't have to be an elected member of parliament often some of the most the people stoking it on the outside can start to you know throw flames into parliament and cause issues there katie and Stephen, thank you very much so that was katie balls and Stephen bush talking about our cover piece lara what other pieces did you like from the magazine this week well, one of the things I, I love about The Spectator are the notebooks that we run in the magazine, um, which, are, which are often different to the diaries. A diary tends to be someone, a kind of someone notable who's, who's writing about their week, whereas a notebook tends to be often written from um, abroad, capturing a sense for place. And, and this week we've got a letter from Antarctica by Robbie Mallet. Robbie is a polar climate scientist currently or has up until very recently been working in Antarctica and he and he, he paints this portrait of what life is like in Antarctica and it, it's it's sort of bleak and humorous and I think I think readers will enjoy it and you can hear an extract here. Our station sits next to a large bay which freezes over as winter sets in. Until then it's warm enough for humpback whales to visit us. The weather is calm, the sky is clear and the full moon lights up the glacial walls of the bay like a football stadium, the drifting icebergs like players. One night, I fell asleep with the window cracked open, listening to the humpbacks call to each other through the still air. I woke up thinking that I'd never heard anything so beautiful. We are truly isolated here, but rarely alone. The same 25 people greet me at every lunchtime and at every dinner time. At times it feels impossible to look at those increasingly weathered faces and all I want to do is hide in bed. I'm beginning to get up earlier and earlier, savouring my alone time in front of the harsh LED lamp that keeps seasonal affective disorder at bay. I can't wait to see the sun. How about you, Will? What did you enjoy? Well, lots of things. Uh, I really like this piece by Henry Jeffries, who we're going to hear a little bit more from uh, later in the podcast. But he writes an extremely funny piece, I think, about believing for most of his adult life that girls do not actually like being given flowers as a present. And he's convinced himself this is all a big con by greeting cards companies, uh, essentially. And it's, he just writes about this penny drop moment he had when he realised, oh my God, actually women do quite like getting flowers. And I thought it was very funny and a very good insight into the, the male brain. But we'll, we'll hear a bit more from him later. The, the other thing I'd like to draw attention to is Tanya Gold's restaurant review this week. I just love Tanya's writing. She's always such a good, funny, observant food critic. And she's reviewed the Hotel de Crillon. Is that probably how you say it? You'll get it French. That sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, she's reviewed the Hotel Crillon in Paris this week. And there's a very funny line there that I just love, where she says that no one does grand hotels like the French, except perhaps the Swiss, who have nothing better to do. And that might be one of my favourite lines from the, from the mag this week, so I do love that. I'd, I'd also just like to mention there's one letter on our letters page this week, which is, is quite intriguing. It's picking up on our notes on St Blaise from last week. It's a, a woman called Ursula Corbett who's written in saying that she used to work as a nurse at the Royal National Throat, Nose and Ear Hospital in Grays Inn Road in the 1980s. And there used to be a statue of St Blaise there, but she visited recently and noticed that the statue had been removed. So she, she writes to say, I wonder if any of your erudite readers might know where she's gone. So I thought it might be worth just mentioning here, just in case any of our erudite listeners know where she's gone. The second feature then we'd like to talk about in a little bit more length is Mary Wakefield's column in the magazine this week, which she's written about 
XL Bullies and her eureka moment because she says that while she used to advocate for XLs, you know, and she grew up in a family of pit bulls, so she was very sympathetic towards dog breeds that are often considered to be dangerous. But she's had a eureka moment and she now thinks that XLs should be, well, wiped out, frankly. And we, we spoke to Mary and Sophie Coulthard, who herself is an XL bully owner. Sophie joined us down the line with her dog, Billy. Mary, in the magazine this week, you write about this change of heart you've had and your attitude towards XL bullies. What, what brought it about? It was really just seeing one up close about an inch from my child brought it home. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the breed. I think they can be lovely dogs, but when you see one up close, especially close to your child, and you realise how little you can actually do in the case of an attack, I realised that it's impossible to have these sorts of dogs on the street, unmuzzled, especially in towns, in close contact with with other people. And you, you say in your piece that you grew up with pit bulls. Uh, do, I mean, do you sort of feel that? Do you feel that XLs are slightly misunderstood, much like pit bulls often are? Yes, I'm sure they're lovely. I mean, I mean, this was before the Dangerous Dogs Act, and um, so I'm, I'm aware of what brave, intelligent, sensitive dogs they are. But and I've always defended them in the past, really defending, you know, the honour of um of my old pit bull friend, but. I am also aware that they are emotional and volatile. And when you take something of this size that's emotional and volatile, I don't think they should be around around normal members of the public going around on the streets. Sophie, I would love to know what you make of Mary's concerns, particularly that XLs are emotional and volatile. I wonder if you could speak to our listeners a bit about your experience and, and how you, why you wanted perhaps an XL bully in the first place and what, what attracted you to the breed. Yeah, of course. I, I think um, emotional, I don't know, I would I would say sensitive. I, I do understand what Mary's saying in terms of, you know, if your dog feels like they've done something wrong, they, the, I think it's something in the bull breed faces that just look almost human-like when they feel like they're upset about something or they feel sick, you know. I think you see it a lot more in those, those bull breed faces. Um, I mean, for myself, me and my partner were looking for a dog. I grew up with various bull breeds I I grew up uh, with sort of three boxers were in my childhood at various points and so for me it was always going to be that look of a dog that I like it's taste isn't it really but when I was looking we considered a staffy and actually I I ran into a few people with American bullies as I would call it um, of the XL size perhaps out and about in London started to talk to them about the breed and thought actually this looks like the ideal dog for me let me do some more research watched a lot of YouTube videos documentaries into the temperament uh, and just felt that it would be the right breed for me I work from home a lot so I wanted a dog that would be very comfortable just lounging around but also had the drive and energy for long hikes you know runs etc so he's met everything that I that I wanted in a pet and and what about um I mean Mary writes in a column and said just now that it was really having one so close to 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 her son that that meant that she's changed her mind about them I mean do you do you see that that people might be afraid of the idea of a of American bullies being too close to their children that they might that if they are emotional or volatile they might they might attack or injure injure children 
I don't think her, I don't personally, I don't think any one breed is more volatile than another. I don't think research has found that aggression is is breed specific in that sense. I can understand that if you have a small child with a big dog and you don't know the owner, you don't know the temperament of the dog and you're in a confined space. And I think that's obviously been heightened by what we've seen in the media. You know, even today there's an article about how to defend yourself against an XL bully attack in, in one of the newspapers, which for a start is full of absolutely terrible advice and we should be getting into schools and, and workplaces and giving better education. <laughs> But I think when three people I know have been mugged for their mobile phone in my immediate area yeah. in the last few weeks, when it comes to public safety, there's some diversion tactic yeah. going on here. It's almost created a moral panic. And when you look at the fact that over 40,000 dogs, I think, have, have been exempted, including my own, I do not believe that there are 40,000 dangerous, volatile dogs walking the streets that there is a handful absolutely and that could be in any breed unfortunately given some of the circumstances around the breed's popularity and links to perhaps criminal activity or tax-free earnings that, that that it has been the American XL bully that's that's taken the blame really. There's a difference between walking around I mean I agree like Jack Russell's and Chihuahuas are some of the nastiest or, or, or most aggressive dogs around but there is a difference between walking around with a with an aggressive Jack Russell and an aggressive, you know, American bully. I mean, there's nothing you can do if a if a American bully chooses to attack. What why don't we talk about it is interesting because I would have said the same as you. I would have said I'm pretty confident what an XL bully looks like. But certainly from some of the images that I've seen online from dogs that have been involved in fatalities, quite a few of those dogs and thought, well in my eyes, that doesn't That's look like an American XL yeah. bully to me. I frequently have people say to me on social media, your dog is not an American XL bully, which I am in a position where I've seen the lineage and I know who my dog's parents and grandparents and before that are. And and actually there is, there is an issue with accurate identification of, of breeds. I know that there was a piece of research done that found that uh, in 256 fatal bites, only 18% were accurately identified. Yeah, XL's getting a bad rap because there's now this media appetite to identify aggressive dogs as XL because it's become I, a kind of... I do feel like there's been a, a, a lumping in of any sort of big bull breed dog. And I'm not saying that there's... That still means there's an issue. There, there is still an issue. But I think if there was a breed issue with the American bully, then DNA testing surely should should come into the mix. If it is specifically this exact breed that is that is causing issues, and as some people have, how's that going to work with the police? Though I just can't see your regular Bobby going up and saying, "Excuse me, hold it there." You know, some chap in a hoodie is obviously going about some nefarious activity. I'll just be taking a cell sample from your massive dog. I mean, that's the challenge with the ban, isn't it? Really, I mean, I I don't agree that the ban was that was the right way forward. I think if you're going to go after big bull breed type dogs, you should go after all. All big dogs in lots of European countries, dogs are required to wear muzzles on public transport. And I'd be interested to know if that dog on on the on the train with you, Mary, was a yeah. Rottweiler or a or if it was a Ridgeback or if it was a, you know, one of these breeds, would you have felt the same? Or was it purely because it looked to you as an XL bully and given everything that's that's played out? 
I definitely, I would have been, you know, the, the media, uh, which I'm part of, has made me more frightened. But this was of a different size order. And of the, the pit bull type. I mean, the other thing I'm worried about is you ban this sort and they just keep getting bigger. They'll become amongst a certain demographic, you know, who use them, you know, to protect themselves in, in sort of gangster situations. There is this race, arms race in a way, that means the dogs keep getting bigger and bigger. And they're, they, you know, they're pretty scary now. Yeah, I do. I I do think that there is a percentage of people that have had these dogs that will move on to a different breed, seeing it already with certain breeds, even in my area, I'm noticing certain breeds more. And is that will that be will we be discussing that breed in five years time? We will be, you know, given the lack of police capability of the lack of money. Sadiq Khan's been saying today they need another four million quid because the Met can't cope with policing this. I personally would be in favour of of a very heavy-handed approach for people that have dangerous dogs or people that use their dogs to intimidate and be and train them to be aggressive towards people. I think, unfortunately, I, I'm not the only one. There's many people that have this dog that pay a lot of attention to training, have really put the effort in with their dogs. I de- I knew getting a bull breed and having go- grown up with bull breeds that there is a certain stigma attached. I think even people with Staffordshire Bull Terriers would, would say the same sometimes about their dog. And I knew the responsibility that came with that, going to see a professional trainer. For me, I, I don't let, oh, in the past, I have not let my dog off lead in London parks, for example, because they're just too busy. And there's too many off-lead dogs and, and you can't control the situation. And many people don't take those steps, either with this breed or, or other breeds. And, and there is a problem. There's definitely a problem. I, d- I don't know um, if you have a dog, Mary, if you. But, um, you know, you go you go into any park in, in London and you see you see incidents occurring all the time. And you're right. A Jack Russell may not deliver a, a fatal bite or may not cause as much fright. But but we do have an issue over here. And I think that we're not tackling it in a way that is looking to the future. Yes, but I think it's just political performance. They know they can't actually, you know, enforce it in many ways. Um, so it's just we've done something about this. Definitely agree on that. And, 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 you know, when you look at other countries and how they may have tackled these breed issues, and there are countries that just keep adding dogs to the dangerous dogs list. And I have to say, it's not something I consider. I did consider the stigma and the stereotype that would be attached to having a breed like this. And actually, I really wanted to be part of advocating against that you know I I didn't want my dog just to be a trained dog I wanted him to be better than that so that I could prove to people that this is a lovely family pet but other countries have continued to add dogs add dogs and have then said actually we're going to do away with this and we're going to look at something different and you look at how other countries have introduced licensing and education and the impact that it's had on fatalities and on dog bites i think that this country needs to look at where the success is and start to take some inspiration and some are some are more heavy-handed than others but i think unless we tackle breeding first i think breeding is at the heart of this there is there is definitely i mean the 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 popularity of this breed rose um and obviously it is the sort of dog that looks a certain way that maybe 20 years ago in rap videos we would have seen rottweilers etc we're now seeing the the american xl bully in in those types of videos and that will always attract people who want to match that status and and look a certain way um and the breed came over to the uk grew in popularity and then right as covid hit and we all went into lockdown these dogs were selling for tens of thousands of pounds some of them and you think if you are somebody who's potentially lost work and not able to earn money 
by a payroll and you are looking for a way to provide and perhaps there is a criminal element alongside it as well in terms of what that person may have been doing beforehand those dogs were a way to make money as soon as you introduce high value you're going to see more criminal activity and unfortunately the dogs are the, the fallout of that bad breeding and then following on bad ownership Sophie and Mary, thank you very much for joining. Will, do you have strong views on XL bullies? Well, I thought Sophie was very convincing there, actually. My instinct is tends to be one of live and let live. You know, I don't want to... There's too many people who want to ban us owning things or doing things, and, and I, I tend to not like all of that. But then I am also pretty worried by a lot of the news stories about increase in dog attacks. I do think there's a solution which which no one has really talked about enough, which is bring back the dog license. And you could use it to test the suitability of owners. And then you're not targeting any particular breed. But you would be able to punish owners more successfully who don't keep dogs under control. The problem is no politician would ever suggest this because I think it would be so unpopular. <laughs> so there we go. That's my totally unworkable solution. Well, from, from the sublime to the ridiculous, let's, let's now move on to talking about flowers we were joined by henry jeffries earlier who talks as you as you mentioned about his great revelation that women do indeed like mm-hmm. flowers and and i i have views on this because i actually used to work in a florist so um here we are henry you've written a very fun piece for the magazine this week how do you manage to get so far in your life without realizing this I don't know. I suppose I thought that, that that it couldn't be that simple or that perhaps that it was some sort of conspiracy by big floristry or the card companies or, or that kind of stuff that, you know, they didn't really like flowers. It was all just a plot to sell flowers. Or I think I was probably just trying to be a bit too clever and <laughs> just thought it can't really be that straightforward. So I, for, for, for many years, I, I just didn't buy flowers and I bought all kinds of other things that never really hit the spot. It's taken me, I'm 46 now. It took me about about 20 years of getting it wrong. What was your What was your biggest right. uh, What was your biggest mistake in terms of gift giving to a romantic partner? Oh God, I've made so many. I think I gave gave one of them a watch, like a sort of kind of old watch. It was basically so. Basically, I just used to buy things that I liked. To be honest, you know, <laughs> not a sort of an old watch. Uh, you know, a bottle of sherry vintage port, you know, just, you know, a sort of a scarf, something like that, you know, kind of things that I wanted. I think it took me a long time to kind of realise that things I wanted might not be what she wanted. And Henry, what's your approach to buying flowers now? Well, I mean, the, the simplest one is just to find a really good florist, one that can talk you through the complicated business of buying flowers. Someone, someone who's going to hold your hand and say... You know, just realise that you're a complete ignoramus and just be like, OK, you need help. You know, rather rather like if you go to a sort of upmarket wine merchant and you can just go in there and say, I don't know anything about wine, but I want some wine for someone who likes wine. Same with florists. So th- th- that's one way to do it. I'm getting a bit better at it. So I quite like going to the market. And on Saturdays, they have a, a, a florist there who has, I don't know if they're locally grown. They probably buy them from some wholesaler in Amsterdam, but I feel like they're locally grown. And I just, and then you could just buy kind of cut flowers and that's quite fun as well. And also, also quite cheap. So yeah, one of the two. 
Well, you know, Henry, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Lara might be able to help you in the future because <laughs> uh, you used to work at a florist, didn't you? Yes, uh, she, I've worked in two florists. My, I worked in a florist when I was about 16 in a holiday job. And then I also, after university, worked in a florist and actually in Covent Garden. It was called the Covent Garden Academy of Flowers. And I worked there for about two years. And I actually learned a lot, I'd say, about flowers, but also about particularly men buying flowers. <laughs> There were two things that really stood out. One was Valentine's Day is obviously the biggest day yeah. for a florist and we would buy in huge amounts of red roses. And one of my main memories was um, men coming in to buy two bouquets, one for their wife and then also one for their mistress, which would always be bigger. Which was Blimey. Quite <laughs> revealing. And then the other thing that was quite interesting is lots of men, because it was near the Royal Opera House, lots of people would buy flowers for the ballerinas and then they would send these bouquets to the to the ballerinas. Anyway, so those, those are the sort of memories. But I, I've always thought with flowers, the best way of approaching it is to just actually, if you're not sure what to do, just stick with one flower. Because I think bouquets can look a bit ropey when it's just sort of cobbled together from whatever. I mean, florists will obviously just put together whatever they've got left over if, it, if there's an amateur coming I'm, into the I'm shop. Taking, I'm taking notes now. <laughs> so, they will, so, you know, you'll not just get all kinds cobbled of together. slightly, you know, slightly dying specimens that, could, you know, probably shouldn't be in a bouquet, but I think if you just go and I mean, I I've you know a lovely bouquet of roses is obviously lovely. I actually don't really like red roses that much, but I think white or pink are really nice. So it's not cliche because that's no, what I always well, I always I, worry that it's I'm, a I'm cliche just... for a reason. I feel like it's a cliche because they look love like roses are just lovely yeah. flowers to have. And then I really love lilies. My daughter's actually called Lily, and everyone associates them with death, but I actually think a bunch of lilies are always always go down well and also what I'd say is that as well I mean obviously you can go to a florist and, and there are lots of brilliant florists out there but actually in a funny way supermarkets are now really good for flowers and you can get if I was going to a florist and I was buying flowers for someone I would probably buy maybe even like a couple of bunches of one flower so maybe tulips or lilies or roses you've got to take the supermarket sticker take off the supermarket, you, no you, one you, wants you, to know they've been that's given true, but you can take it off and then you can you could always just put it in some new paper and just wrap it up more nicely but I mean, this, the, is, the, this is brilliant stuff Lara <laughs> I am, well, I'm actually, taking actually, notes I'm going to go down to get some sort of I don't know like liberty paper or something that would look just as nice and you know as, as, you know, as thoughtful and then also you can kind of think slightly seasonally so at the moment obviously it's things like hyacinths I mean the thing is now you can get flowers all through the year because as you say the big flower markets in Amsterdam provide pretty much everything all year round but you know in the summer there are normally peonies my favorite flowers actually in the summer are um, sweet williams which come out in about in about sort of june and they're really beautiful and you don't really notice them because they're tiny but those are quite nice as well so yeah the, the funny thing is i have actually got quite into not that i would ever buy flowers for myself but i do quite like having them around and i think i think that wildflower look you know that sort of when you get lots, you know, you use bits of sort of sweet Williams, but, you know, I don't know what they're called, but you get, you sometimes go to the forest and they've got, they look like they've just been collected from a meadow somewhere. Mm. They obviously haven't. I love that kind of thing. So yeah, go, also what there. I'd say is, I mean, obviously it's lovely to get a big bunch of flowers, but to be honest, you can, what I sometimes do is I, if I see a bunch of flowers that's made up of sort of odds and sods, you can then just mm. buy it and separate the flowers out and then put them into their... You know, put all the roses together, put the hyacinths together, and they tend tends to look better, I'd say, rather than everything just shoved in together. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> you, you, Gina, Gina, you're you're wasted at the Spectator <laughs> as, as an editor. You should you should you, you probably make a, you probably make a lot more money as a flor, a floristry advisor to people like me.
Yeah, I mean, I did. I I really loved it. It was it was a great job, and I, I learned a lot. And I mean, you know, people do love flowers. I think you're right. I think it is. It's sort of one of these things. As Will says, it is thought of as a bit of a cliche, but that's probably because. Well, hang on, I didn't. I didn't say flowers were cliche. Just oh, but I thought partic- particularly a bunch of red roses. Isn't it a bit? Um, I I think I think red roses are. I, I don't really like red roses. I think I, something about just the look of them. I I think that they're quite almost like aggressive looking. I prefer mm. like the slightly softer colours that you can find. But, you know, there are so many different flowers you can find. And, and the other tip I'd say is make sure when you're putting them in water, just you have to, any anything that's submerged in water, any leaves or anything, just take those off because they will rot really quickly and those will kill the flowers quickly. So just, oh, you just take everything off from, like a lot of what we were doing at the forest is you strip the strip the stem and then and then you cut, cut the bottom off at an angle and that will make the flowers last longer. Well, I must say what I agreed with in your piece, I agreed with in your piece, Henry, was um, that obviously you don't need a reason to buy girl flowers but i must say i do think that valentine's day is just an absolute con <laughs> yeah. uh so when you said at the beginning that that all of the that the idea of the love of flowers is a sort of conspiracy of uh greetings card companies and big flower or whatever i wouldn't go that far but i do i do think that specifically valentine's day is just kind of i think if, rubbish, you, if you're actually. only buying flowers on valentine's day that is I would say it's it's nicer to buy flowers throughout the year. If you yeah. buy them on Valentine's Day, so be it. But I think if if that's the only day you buy flowers, then you probably are falling for, you know, big greeting card or well, big, exactly. big and, all the, and all the prices go up around Valentine's Day as well. So it's yeah, just, oh, yeah, it's, it's, complete, it's a complete rip off. And there's the, the price of a red rose rockets around Valentine's. Yeah. So you actually are you're being conned. I'd so. rather I'd buy. I'd like to buy flowers at in any other day of the year, pretty much, just not Valentine's Day. That's my <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, maybe maybe then buy a bottle of sherry. Yeah. Valentine's Day. <laughs> Maybe not. I won't get anything for Valentine's I really think Valentine's Day is a con. I will not. Apologies to my wife who will be listening, but she will never, she has never, and will continue to never get any present on Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know. It's just, it's just a hard line. I, I, I worry. You said very I much worry. Said. <laughs> yeah. Again, any other day, any other occasion, I'll get flowers. You remind me a lot of my younger self, but not Valentine's Day. I'm not going to get lured in. (laughs) I feel like I feel like you haven't had the great awakening. Yeah, (laughs) some men at a certain age. Excellent. Well, Henry, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And a new thing we'd like to try on this podcast, a bit like with our letters page, is to encourage our listeners to also let us know what they've enjoyed on in this week's issue of the magazine. Because we're both Luddites, neither Will or, or I are actually on Twitter, but if you want to get in touch, please do email us at podcast at spectators.co.uk and we will try to incorporate some of it in next week's issue. And that's everything for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of the magazines to read everything we've talked about in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. Bye.